0: Well, today we continue on in our sermon series titled, Questions Jesus Asks," And today we find ourselves in the very first chapter of John's Gospel. Two disciples of John the Baptist leave John the Baptist to follow Jesus. But before Jesus allows them to follow him, he asks them, What are you looking for? What are you seeking in me? What do you want of me? You know, everyone who's ever approached Jesus has had something that they were longing for in him, even us here today. And so today Jesus asks us afresh, what are you looking for? Our sermon text comes from John chapter 1. We will read verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw Where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour One of the two who heard john speak and followed jesus was andrew simon peter's brother He first found his own brother simon and said to him We have found the messiah which means christ He brought him to jesus jesus looked at him and said You are simon son of john You shall be called cephas Which means peter because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you preserve these words for us, an account which helps us to see what it looks like to come under your gracious discipleship, Jesus, um, to walk with you, to come and to see, uh, prepare our hearts to understand what we've read, um, give us wisdom, uh, and give us a love for our Savior, we pray, amen. Well, if you've been around a church for long enough, uh, most likely you've heard this joke. It's, uh, it's the one about the Sunday school teacher who was preparing a lesson in which she wanted to teach on being diligent and hardworking, and, and she wanted to use the example of squirrels for the students, and she started by saying, uh, you know, I want to describe something uh, for you, and as soon as you know what it is, I want you to raise your hand uh, and tell us what it is. And of course, all the kids—they love to be taught this way—and so they're eagerly listening to the Sunday school teacher. And she says, "I'm thinking of something that lives in trees and it eats nuts." No one raised their hand, and so she went on to say, "Well, it can be gray or or brown, and it, it has a, a long bushy tail." Students all looked at each other, but still no one raised their hand. And then she says, well, it chatters, And sometimes when it gets excited, it it, it flips its tail up and down. Finally, a hand went up as a boy shyly raised his hand. and, And the teacher breathed a sigh of relief. She says, okay, Michael, what is it that I'm describing? Well, said the boy, it sure sounds like a squirrel. But I guess the answer is supposed to be Jesus. (laughs) We're going to see this morning that Jesus truly is the answer to all of life's deepest questions and longings. And therefore, we must seek him above all else. But before you come to Jesus with all your questions and longings, we must first hear what Jesus asks us. He says, what are you looking for? That is what Jesus asked Andrew and this other man when they come, he comes to Jesus. What are you seeking? What are you looking for in me? You know, back then, Jesus was quite a novelty. He was kind of new on the scene. He hadn't had 2,000 years of people trying to figure out who he was. And so it was, it was fairly easy to get people to come and to meet him. But even then... Many didn't stick around very long. They were looking for the wrong things in Jesus. Today, everyone feels as if they got Jesus already figured out. The atheist says there is no God, and and although Jesus was a nice, kind man, he was simply just a man. And people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, they, they think they got Jesus all figured out, but they end up missing him completely. It's as if today, if you invite someone to come and to to see Jesus, it's it's as if you're inviting them to come and binge watch uh, three years of episodes of Leave it to Beaver. Doesn't seem like all that much fun. For the young ones, you're just going to have to YouTube that one there. Leave it to Beaver. Golly. All right. But John shows us that all who genuinely come to Jesus are not disappointed. In fact, far from it. Their lives are filled with acceptance and renewal and joyful amazement. uh, An amazement that is otherworldly. And that is because our problems as we experience them here on this world cannot be fixed within the broken framework of our fallen human existence. Heaven must be opened up to earth. God in his grace must come down. Why is that? It's because when, when when the solutions to all that ails you are found in things of this earth, the solutions will be fleeting and ultimately unsatisfying. The joy and the relief you experience will be always uh, temporary and and, and threatened. It matters whether, doesn't matter whether we're talking about your health or your career or, or relationships. And when we get these things good in our lives, we, we cling to them in fear that we could one day lose them. Is that not true? All the solutions that we find here on earth end up letting us down in the long run. So heaven must come down to remedy man's condition. And in Jesus Christ, God has done just that. Therefore, we must seek him above all else. Jesus really is the answer to all of life's questions. John tells us this morning that in Jesus, heaven has been opened up. Christ has descended and ascended. Hope has come, so come and see. We're going to spend our time this morning just kind of moving through the text, seeing what's going on, trying to make sense of it, and applying it to our lives. Our passage begins in verse 35 with the words, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold the Lamb of God. So the John here uh, that John is writing about, he's not writing about himself, he's writing about John the Baptist. And and, uh, for the prior two days, John the Baptist was baptizing at the river and what we see was um, John was uh, approached by the religious leaders and they were asking him, are you the Messiah, are you Elijah? And he says, no, no, I'm not. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He says, I'm the one who's been sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And, and he did a wonderful job of preparing the way of the Lord. And then um, he, he, the, next, the next day after that, Jesus appears on the scene. And John baptizes Jesus. And the dove descends upon Jesus. And um, what we hear from John the Baptist is he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then what we see in our passage, it's the next day after that. And what we see is what? That, that John the Baptist has two disciples with him, at least two, but we know two of them left, and he sees Jesus again, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, what did the disciples do? He's left immediately. John the Baptist didn't say, hey, go follow him. They just left. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that um, John the Baptist has done a good job preparing the way and then stepping out of the way when Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, who are these two disciples? Well, we know one of them's name is Andrew. Um, it comes from the Greek word Andreas. I have a friend named Andreas. I just found this out this week as I studied this. It means manly, manly. Uh, so, Andrew, he's a manly man. That's uh, The other disciples' name's not given, but scholars are prone to agree that this is most likely John, who wrote this gospel, John has a way of referring to himself in his gospel without actually giving his name. So, so Manly and his friend are walking with Jesus, and Jesus turns and essentially says, what's going on here? Why are you following me? Why are you seeking after me? See, everyone who's ever come to Jesus has had their own idea of who Jesus is supposed to be, and Jesus is on guard for that, for you coming to him with the wrong motives. See, we tend to create a box or a mold that we want Jesus to to fit in, and we try to stuff him into it. And so Jesus is right to ask this question, right? Now, the thing about Andrew, which we should model as we come to Christ, is that he was open. Open to allowing Jesus to shape Jesus' identity for Andrew. How do we see this? Well, to the question, what are you seeking? How does Andrew answer? He simply says, Where are you staying? Andrew didn't say, well, Jesus, I want to hear your platform on being the Messiah. I want to hear about whether you're going to overthrow Rome. What kind of credentials do you have? Do you come from all the right places? Where have you been trained? No, Andrew didn't approach Jesus with an agenda to get something from Jesus. He simply wanted to be with him. Andrew didn't approach Jesus with an immovable box of belief. You know, he knew in some way he was the Messiah, but he was willing to allow that definition of Messiah to be defined by the Messiah. There's something about this Messiah who's different than what they were expecting. This Messiah is involved in sacrifice. He is in some way a lamb that gives his life. I'm sure they were scratching their heads as to exactly what it, uh, who Jesus was. There was a lot of head-scratching going on. You see, Jesus doesn't fit anybody's mold. There is no person who has ever lived who had an accurate mold of Jesus before coming and meeting him and studying him and learning about him. Yet millions of people do just that. There's the mold of the good moral teacher. There's the mold of the uh, the militaristic Messiah. There's the mold of he was just a, a worker of miracles. The atheists... As a box they try to stuff Jesus in those who are religious but uh, those who are spiritual but not religious they try to stuff Jesus into a nice neat little box but Andrew demonstrates for us that if you insist on coming to Jesus with a mold of your own making you will miss Jesus entirely like Andrew you and I need to come with open minds holding loosely to our own preconceived notions of who Jesus must be and when Jesus asks you and me when he asks you, what are you looking for? The proper response is to be with you, to spend time with you, getting to know you. Let me ask you this. Um, and first off, you know, Jesus is so outside of all human categories of who he is that, that it can take a lifetime to try to figure out who this Jesus is is. In our passage, we're given all kinds of biblical titles. Do you know in the, in the first chapter of John's gospel, there, there are more uh, titles for Jesus than in any other book in the Bible? And even in our own passage, what do we see? He is called the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Son of God, King of Israel, the Son of Man who opens up heaven upon earth. Let me ask you this. Did these disciples on their very first day of discipleship, have full meaning and understanding of what all of these titles were as they pertain to Jesus. No, they didn't. But they were making themselves available to be with him, and over time, he unfolds more fully just who he is. They eventually they do come to know. To all who come to Jesus without a box to fit him into, he welcomes you with the words, come and see. In verse, four, uh, in verse 39, they accept Jesus' offer, and they come and they see, and they stayed all day with Jesus, talking and listening and learning, and obviously what they learned from Jesus caused their hearts to, and their minds to be filled with delight. And in verse 40, we found out that one of them was named Andrew, and, uh, and that he had a brother, Simon Peter. What did Andrew do? The very first thing he did when he realized what all was going on, we read that he went and he, he found his brother. And he says, we found the Messiah. We found him. We found the Christ. So here's what we see. In verse 41, Andrew finds his brother. And then in verse 42, he brings him to Jesus. <laughs> He models and demonstrates for us that that what an experience with Christ does for you, it makes you into a finder bringer. When Christ enlivens you with the good news of the gospel, you cannot help but go, become a finder bringer. You go and you find family members, you find classmates, you find co-workers, and, and you bring them to Jesus. Now... Today, we've got a lot of churchy words that kind of ruffle our feathers, words like evangelism and, and outreach, and, and these are kind of words that kind of poke our backs like sharp needles, right, and cause us to feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm sure if you're a Christian here today, when you hear the word evangelize, you just feel guilty, right? You get this, you get a sense like you should be better, you know, there's areas where you fall short. And, and some pastors would preach this passage and say, go be like Andrew. You go out and evangelize. I think perhaps a better way to approach it is to say, go be like Andrew. Spend time with Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. Learn from him, really, who he is and how he is the answer to all of life's questions. And that will transform you into someone who is a finder bringer. It's the grace of Jesus that transforms us. We must soak in what he has done for us in Christ, draw near to him. And that changes us to be the people that we know we should be. And evangelism will will no longer be a labor, but it will become a longing. Now, the way of Andrew is quite simple. Soak in the goodness and glory of a relationship with Jesus long enough and you cannot help become a finder bringer. Now, do you notice that Andrew, every time we see Andrew in the gospel of John, he is bringing someone to the Lord? Every time we see him. Even when when there's 5,000 people they need to feed, they don't have enough money to go buy bread and what have you, Andrew goes out and he finds a boy with uh, five loaves and two fishes and what does he do? He brings them to Jesus. There was a time later on when these Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And and they come and they knock on the door and they talk to Philip. And they say, we want to see Jesus. And so Philip, what does he he do? He gets Andrew. (laughs) What does Andrew do? He brings him to Jesus. Every time we see Andrew, he's bringing someone to come and to see Jesus. And as you see what's happening in our passage, Andrew is the very first disciple. And this very first disciple immediately goes out and brings people to come and to see Jesus, who in turn become disciples. Andrew was enthusiastic, and he went out and found his brother, and he brought him to Jesus. But it was Jesus who did all the heavy lifting, right? We see that Jesus looked at Simon um, with, with these amazing words. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall now be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus changed Simon's name to Cephas. That's the Aramaic. The Greek word is Petros. It's uh, it's a play on the word Petra, which is rock. Uh, Jesus is, is saying, Jesus changes Simon's name to stone. That's pretty cool. Um, now, if you know anything about Peter, he's... Throughout the Gospels, he's really not much of a stone of a man. He's really more like water of a man. But what we see is that, certainly after the resurrection of Jesus, where the mercy and grace of God comes to Peter, Jesus fully transforms Peter uh, into, into a stone of a man. And great things are accomplished through this man. It presents us with this truth. You cannot spend time with Jesus without becoming more of the man or woman that he has pledged you to be. There's a transformation that comes by being a follower of Christ and delighting in him and following him. Let's also be clear about something. Jesus used Andrew to get to Peter. Andrew was no all-star disciple. Uh, There aren't any records of him before or after the resurrection of him doing anything, like, magnificent, Like, when he's introduced here, how is he introduced? As the brother of Simon Peter, right? (laughs) He wasn't a great man in the early church, but he played a small, humble role. It was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus, an act which William Temple says was perhaps as great a service to the church as ever any man did. Andrew might not have been able to do great things, But he brought Peter to Jesus, and Peter did great things. Consider roughly 1,500 years later, consider that monk in Erfurt who, who taught Martin Luther the doctrines of justification by faith. He did little himself, but Martin Luther lit a fire of God's grace all throughout Europe, and an awakening took place. Or think of that Sunday school teacher a little over 100 years ago who purposely went out of his way in order to find and and bring Jesus to a young man. He told him about Christ's love for sinners. The result was the conversion of D.L. Moody, perhaps one of the greatest, uh, most uh, modern finder bringers of of, uh, the last hundred years. Verse 43 reads, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip encounters Jesus and what does he immediately do? He goes and he finds Nathanael. Nathanael means God has given. But Nathanael isn't giving his brother an inch, is he? Philip tells Nathanael, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. This statement tells us something. It tells us that, that Philip and Nathaniel were both actively searching out the scriptures, trying to understand what God was going to do through this, this mysterious Messiah servant who was to come. And, and so Philip says, you know, he says, we've, we've found him, the one that the Old Testament's been speaking of the one in which God's glorious plan of redemption is going to work out, the, the one who's to come, who's to be the answer to all of life's problems and longings. We've, we've found him. Philip says to Nathaniel, we've, we've found the Almighty One, and, and he's from Queens. <laughs> all right, not exactly. Uh, he's from Nazareth. Yeah, and, he, and he's, he's Joseph's son. Nathanael rejects his brother outright, saying, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel didn't come from any place better. Both came from tiny little obscure towns. Nathaniel came from Cana in Galilee. Jesus was of Nazareth. But he must have thought, like people do today, that, that larger-than-life figures must come from well, uh, well-groomed families and great institutions and big cities of renown, right? But Jesus, the Son of God and the Redeemer of the world, came from a no-name place called Nazareth. This should be comfort for us. Our Savior, our our Lord, came from Nazareth. Most of us don't come from prestigious families or, or fancy schools. Yet our Lord came from Nazareth. Now, did you see how Philip responded to his brother's skepticism? He didn't argue with him. He just simply said, all right, well, just come and see. Come and see. And he took him to Jesus. Now, if Nathaniel was like most skeptics in our day, he probably would have said something like, yeah, no, I'm not interested. I got this already figured out. I've made up my mind. But in Nathaniel, we see a quality that, that Jesus reveals—a quality of of what a, what it looks like to to properly come and genuinely uh, inquire of Jesus Christ. Picking up in verse forty-seven, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, "Behold, an Israelite uh, indeed, in whom there is no deceit." Now let's unpack the statement. Jesus had never met Nathaniel, and as Nathaniel approaches Jesus. He tells Nathanael that he already knows Nathanael. he says, look, uh, a a genuine Israelite, one in whom there is no deceit. Now, the King James says, one in whom there is no guile. That's a pretty cool word, right? Um, The Greek word is dolos. And originally, it meant bait for fishing. But it came to be used and mean uh, trickery or treachery. You can kind of see how that could happen, right? (laughs) All right, um... Although I have a problem with fishing, I'm not very good at that. So, anyway, so, um, but here, here, here's where it gets interesting. Jesus calls him an Israelite. An Israelite was a descendant of a man named what? Jacob. Uh, but God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Now, Jacob had a twin, an older brother. He's just like a minute older, right? And Jacob means one who grasps that heel, and, and he was grabbing at his brother's heel. Later in life, he grabbed at Esau, that's his brother, grabbed at Esau's birthright, his inheritance, and he stole it from him with great cunning and deceit. You can read this story, it's in Genesis, but he stole his birthright. Now, in the ancient translation of the Hebrew uh, Bible, the ancient Greek translation called the Septuagint, what do we find? There's a Greek word that is used to describe that treachery that Jacob did, and it's the Greek word Dolos, the exact same one that we see here in our passage. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look what I see before me. I see an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Behold, an Israelite in which there is no Jacob. This is a true Israelite, indeed. Now, Nathaniel reacts to Jesus' statement. Uh, how he reacts proves Jesus' point. Nathanael replies, How do you know me? Now, Jesus paid him a great compliment, right? How do most people respond when some dignitary pays him a great compliment? Well, it just kind of changes our demeanor. We're like, well, yeah. Well, thank you very much. And you know what? You're pretty smart and wise too, aren't you? And then, then begins this like fake friendship, right? That's how a guileful person responds. But not Nathanael. Nathaniel explodes with an incredulous question, "How do you know me?" If Andrew modeled for us genuine open mind when it comes to investigating and knowing Jesus, Nathaniel models for us how we must be willing to wrestle with our doubts and bring them to Jesus. There are plenty of skeptics who, when you invite them to come and see Jesus, um, and you say, "No, seriously, just come, just come and see, find out for yourself," that they, they roll their eyes, they dismiss you, they think you know, you're like some dim-witted person who's fooled into this religious nonsense. Now, if Nathaniel was this way, he never would have encountered Jesus, he never would have had his belief turned upside down, and he never would have heard what came next. To his question, how do you know me? Jesus astonishingly replied, Before Philip called you, when you were under the tree, I saw you. Now for us, it's like, okay, well, what's a big deal there. All right, okay, well, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying uh, that before you were even reached out to by your brother Philip, before we even had a chance to see each other eye to eye, I saw you. I knew you. Now it's not so much that he saw him that that gives the that really um, converted Nathaniel. It was where Jesus saw him. Jesus said that he saw him where under the fig tree. You know. There was no air conditioning in Jesus' day, right? And, but there were fig trees. Every home, if it could, would have a fig tree at least, if not more, not just for the figs that you ate, but fig trees provided great shade. It was widespread practice in Palestine in that time to, to go under your fig tree during the daytime and read and pray and, and meditate. In the Old Testament, we see fig trees coming up a lot. And In Micah chapter 4, which speaks of a day to come when God when God finally brings his justice to earth and, and, and restores this world to a place where we really want to be, uh, he says these words. We read, But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now, perhaps when the Lord returns or when we see Nathaniel, someday in the age to come, we can ask him what exactly was going on under the fig tree that, that caused you to realize that Jesus knew you and he was divine? Perhaps we can ask them at some time. But the important thing is that Nathaniel knew beyond a with beyond it a beyond a doubt. It could have been earlier in the day, it could have been weeks before, but there sat Nathaniel perhaps reading and praying and meditating. And he experienced something from God that when Jesus mentioned it here, Nathanael knew that Jesus must be the Son of God and the King of Israel. Here's what Nathanael experienced. It's as if Jesus was saying, before you knew anything about me, I knew you. It's a comfort to us, isn't it? When I look back on the wasted years of my life before I was age 29, and that's when I came to know Christ and follow him, I think of all the years of just selfish self-love, going out and just building a business for my own name, racing motorcycles for all that glory, and and just uh, living for Mark's pleasure. I think about all those wasted years sitting under my fig tree. The amazing thing is, Jesus saw me there. He knew me before I knew him. And he knows you. If you're here this morning and you're complaining about not having eyes to see and believe Jesus, well, he sees you. He knows you right where you are. I invite you to come and to see, to to pray to Christ. Ask him to to be alive in your life. Uh, Ask him to come and meet you. He knows where you are. For those of us who are Christians here, there is a lesson for us. John Calvin writes this. He says, We should also gather from this passage a useful lesson that when we are not even thinking of Christ, we are observed by him. And this must needs be so that he may bring us back when we have withdrawn from him. Some of you need to hear that today, don't you? You've wandered from Christ. You've given your life to him. You've been a disciple of his, but you've, now you find yourself wrapped up with seeking answers in the things of this world. And you find yourself in a difficult spot. Jesus knows where you are. If you belong to him. And he calls you out of that. Back into a relationship with him. Jesus ends this encounter with uh, with Nathaniel. And here's what he says. He says, oh, you think that's cool? You just wait till later. You haven't seen nothing yet, right? Okay, that's not exactly what he says. Verse 51. Jesus answered him, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Once again, it's a reference to Jacob. Earlier, Liz read from Genesis 28, the account where Jacob had had fallen asleep and he had visions of of angels ascending and descending from heaven back to earth. What had happened? Jacob had just really ticked off his brother Esau. Jacob is fleeing. Jacob is leaving the land that he knew was his. And and back then, God's were parochial. They were like, uh, you know, as soon as you left your land, your God was no longer with you, right? And, and so Jacob was most likely thinking that. And um, so God graciously comes to him in a dream. This Jacob, who was a deceiver of his brother, but, a, but Jacob, who God had promised to bless no matter what, he, he shows him, um, he demonstrates to Jacob, who became known as Israel, that heaven will always be opened to you. No matter where you go, angels will ascend and descend, because I've promised to be gracious to you. Jacob experiences that. It transforms him. He really truly becomes Israel after that. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to us, the word "you" in our English text is actually in the plural. Y'all, y'all are going to see heaven opened up, all right? I know we're not from the south, so I'll try not to... It's not even funny up here. Okay. Jesus is saying that was once the ladder. is now me. And the angels will ascend and descend upon me. Through me. Heaven is opened up upon the earth. Quite a bold claim. If the box that you're trying to fit Jesus into doesn't have that in it, room for that, I'm sorry to say, you're missing Jesus. He is saying, I am the way. A few verses later in in John chapter 14, Jesus says... I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A lot of people think Christianity is an invitation to become religious, to become really moral, to put off these things that you do and finally get life right and do all these right things and God will pat you on the back. It's as if you're well climbing up a ladder to heaven. How foolish we are to think we can do that. Our best deeds are filthy rags in the sight of God. How can we even begin to be so pompous and arrogant to think that if we just clean up our lives a little bit, well, then we can make ourselves acceptable. But God has given us an answer. It's not a ladder. It's his son who is the ladder. And through him, heaven is open to us. And all the grace and the mercy that we long for and need is in him. These disciples commit to following Jesus and to letting Jesus open up to them just who he really is. It'll take years for them to understand what all these titles mean. And if you're a new Christian, guess what? It's going to take a while to figure it all out. But guess what? Spend time with Christ, he will fill those answers out for you. Spend time with his body, spend time in scripture, spend time praying. He's alive. We celebrated Easter just a few, other, few days ago, right? A few weeks ago. This Lord is risen. What do all these titles mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? What kind of king is he to be? These disciples don't fully know just yet. When they heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've you got to agree that they weren't thinking of a cross just yet, right? But there would be a day to come in which heaven is opened up and Jesus is nailed to a cross and blood drips and he dies for us so that our sins could be forgiven. That, that day was coming, but they wouldn't have known exactly what this means, that he's the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But in three years' time, they would come to know that. But Christ has done something for these disciples. He has opened up heaven to earth through his existence here on earth. The discipleship has begun. And just as a journey of a thousand miles requires one step, so too this next step that they take was an important one. What was the next step? If you have your Bibles open, you don't have to open them, but in John chapter 2, the very next thing, where does Jesus take Nathanael? From Cana, where does he take him? To Cana in Galilee. We're going to go to your hometown, Nathaniel, and you're going to see something amazing. Maybe it was his friend. Maybe they knew there was a wedding. Maybe Nathaniel's like, yeah, my cousin's getting married. Jesus shows up. They run out of wine. It would have brought disgrace on that whole family. Jesus changes water into wine. And what John says is that in that moment, the glory of Jesus was revealed to his disciples. And for the first time, they believed. They didn't fully know who they were following, but they committed to follow him and allow him to define just who he is. To allow him over time to reveal his glory. My friends, that's what it means to be a disciple. It's over time we come to know who Christ is. Obviously, we have an advantage. We look back at the cross. We know that what it means that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It means the Son of God literally died for us so that heaven could be open to us. But even having known that, as you walk with Christ, there is a lot of details that need filling out. It's foolishness on our part to be separated from the body of christ and not to allow yourself to be to be served by other christians or to serve other christians or Or to spend time with other believers growing in a knowledge of things is that not what what philip and nathaniel did They searched the scriptures together longing for the messiah A journey of a thousand miles begins with one step and if you are a christian We are on a journey of many steps. We wait for jesus to return but what we believe today is that we have come in to, to see that Jesus truly is, as we get back to the beginning, uh, he really truly is the answer to all of life's questions. That little boy, he wanted to answer a squirrel, but he just had to... Maybe it's Jesus, right? Ultimately... Let's be honest here. Ultimately, we're all going to, within a hundred years, we're all going to be passed away, unless there's some miraculous new cure for something I don't know about. But you know, all of life's answers here on earth are fleeting. But in Jesus Christ, heaven has been opened to us, and all the goodness and the greatness and the glory that is in Him is now ours. And so we believe that all of the answers to life's questions ultimately are wrapped up in this man. The question is. Do you know him? What are you looking for? Jesus says to all those who are generally looking, he says, come and see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're not in the dark, that real truth about you, about your character, about your creation, about who we are as human beings, it's not hidden from us. It's clear in scripture. But we need the eyes of faith. We need the Holy Spirit to see and to understand. Encourage us as we walk out of here. Encourage us as we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper that we are not alone, that you, you, Jesus, see us where we are. You know where we are. You care for us. You love us. And you are filling out the details of our lives, our lives in you. We thank you. uh, In Jesus' name, amen.